You're trying to get the guys to figure out what's as fast as I can and what's as fast as I can. Which version is the best? Because in the game, only fast as you can play. As fast yeah. as you can to play. But how do you figure that out? You got to get them going. And by being in close proximity and rolling reps, you can control the lane and the hop type and the direction. There's something to be said about being able to talk from 10 feet away, from five feet away, right beside the guy, pull a guy out of the drill and the, the show continuing on. Mm -hmm. Versus when you fungo and you stop it and you're shouting, even if your message is positive, it seems gruff, it seems intense from 120 feet away yeah. because I'm having a sh And then when I'm stopping and I'm shouting to you, I'm not hitting the ball to the next guy. The show's not going on. Yeah. Hey, infielders, how many reps do you need to feel like you're good to go that first hitter? And to a man, they're all like three. One to kind of do from a short distance, one to kind of gradually work it back. And if I can get a, a throw from the deepest part of my position, kind of full throttle, I'll be ready to go for that leadoff guy. But how many times is a guy frustrated with an at-bat, slow to get out there, we can't find the gloves, he gets no reps, or if he gets one, it's, it's nothing that's actually getting him ready for that leadoff guy. But it all works back into this theme of this machine working as efficiently as possible. And I think the more often that we're able to kind of tie everything together in that way, I think it's cool because it's competitive and we don't have to be better than anybody other than the team we're facing on that given day. We may have a bad day. And if we're playing Harvard, we don't need to be better than Dartmouth. We just need to be better than Harvard <laughs> on that day. And it forces us to just put blinders on to what's happening across the league, look across the other end of the field and just try to be better than those guys for those nine innings. You're dialed in to the ABCA's Calls from the Clubhouse podcast. Connecting our coaches with some of the best baseball minds in our game. Now here's your host, Jeremy Sheetinger. Broadcasting from the ABCA National Office here in Greensboro, North Carolina. Welcome back or welcome to our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast. This is your baseball coaching source for certified audio gold and the place where you come to connect with the very best baseball minds in our game. If you stumbled upon this podcast to be challenged as a coach, as a leader, if you're here to continue learning as much as you can about this great game, if you showed up and dialed into this show because you wanted to grow today, welcome. You're in great company with the tens of thousands of our loyal listeners around the world, and we have a dynamite show on deck for you today. Subscribe, review, and share always with the reminders, your phone, your computer, your tablet. Hit subscribe so you never miss another show. Leave us a review on there, and please share this show wherever you can. Keep spreading the word and reaching more baseball folks with this podcast. Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Find us at ABCA1945. You can also head over to our website, abca.org. If you're looking for more information about what our baseball coaching fraternity here is all about, also, please feel free to reach out to me directly at CoachSheets3 on Twitter or by email Sheets, S-H-E-E-T-S, at abca.org. Also, proud to send a shout-out to our great friends over at AstroTurf, the leaders in the clubhouse for the turf industry. We appreciate their sponsorship of this show, and we don't want to cause too many nightmares now because we're not even close to playing games yet. But if we could all think ahead to the early spring, most of us are going to be dealing with the elements, the snow, then rain, tarp pools, and all that jazz. Now just imagine the possibilities of having your own turf field, selling your field tarps, and laughing at inches of snow dropping on your field. 
How awesome would that be? Well, it can become your reality. Just reach out to Doug White on the West Coast, Aaron Klotz on the East Coast. Those are your AstroTurf reps that can talk you through all of the details that might help bring the turf solution to your ballpark. So for more information, head over to their website, AstroTurf.com. That's AstroTurf.com. And find out why AstroTurf has been ahead of the curve for over 50 years. I'm just going to say it right now. And we've had some strong episodes on infield play over the years. Go back to episode 11 with Nate Trotsky. That was a huge hit, still is. Episode 15 with Marty Lease was packed with insight. Episode 60 with Perry Hill, Bone absolutely brings it. A show that continues to get referenced. And even episode 24, when these guys first came on, it was awesome. But, but, this is the infield episode to end all infield episodes. (laughs) Drop the mic, drop the fungo, and we can call it quits. Coaches, I cannot stress this enough to you before we get rolling. Take feverish notes will be the understatement of the podcast. Get very familiar with the 15-second rewind button on your device. You're going to need it. Multiple listens will be needed. Just wait. I'll be standing on the other end of the outro saying, I told you so. This week's show connects us with the Cleveland Indians lower-level infield coordinator, Kainoa Correa, and the associate head coach at Yale University, Tucker Frawley. These two are close friends and brothers of infield play and are two of the personalities behind hashtag Friday Fielders on social media. Both Kai and Tuck have been leading from the front on challenging thoughts on how we train, what we emphasize as coaches, how we teach the specific movements and actions within our infield group, and we get them both back on the airwaves to uncover a myriad of topics relative to infield. Now, just a little preview of what these cats will bring to our main stage in Dallas this January at hashtag ABCA 2019. That's our upcoming national convention, and these two are going to absolutely show up. It's a can't-miss presentation and yet another can't-miss episode. So take some extra short hops before we get rolling here. We've got Tucker Frawley and Kainoa Correa as both men join our show as our guest on this week's Calls from the Clubhouse podcast. Get ready, coaches. This great show is coming at you right now. Coaches, thanks for dialing into our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast. We're going back on the infield today with two of the literal thought leaders on infield play, guys that I truly respect, and I know our our coaches do as well. We're excited to see them both jump up on the main stage when we get to our Dallas convention. So fired up this morning, had my boss hit me ground balls in the ABCA National Office hallways. Excited to get this conversation rolling. I want to welcome in the associate head coach at Yale University, Tucker Frawley. Tucker, thanks for jumping on the call with us. How's it going, Sheets? Thanks for having us, man. Excited to have you back on. And we're also welcomed by the Cleveland Indians lower-level infield coordinator, Kainoa Correa. Kai, thanks for jumping on the call with us. What's up, Sheets? Thanks for having me. You guys are the best, man. Appreciate you jumping back on. Again, we had a conversation months ago about infield play and then watching both of you progress. What happened at Yale this year, Tuck, I know you're going to get into in terms of the success you guys had on the infield. Kai, you jumping jobs and getting into professional baseball. There's a lot that's changed since our last conversation. We're going to open all that up 
But where we start our show, we like to get on ABCA members. Again, you guys get to jump up on the main stage together in Dallas. Kai, kick this one off for us. When we're talking about your ABCA experience over the years, certainly transitioning from college to now professional baseball, you still see value in being part of our fraternity. Can you open that up? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's multifaceted to me. I think about it in the sense of um, access to information mm-hmm. between the conventions, between the podcasts, uh, between the, the ABCA chat. So there's always something new going on, something you can go and read, something you can go and listen to, something you can go and watch. And then I think about it in terms of networking and how it's just one giant, uh, you know, party meeting impromptu, um, impromptu breakdowns amongst baseball coaches. And then the last thing I think about it in, for me personally is I think about the opportunities and exposure it's, it's given to me. I don't know if Without the ABCA, the, the Cleveland Indians ever find out who I am and, and I get my current job. Wow. Open that up because that is a really cool dynamic. Your Expo Theater presentation a couple of years ago. There's a couple of people in the crowd that somehow it's worked its way out. Wanted you. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of crazy. Um, you, you never really know who's watching, who's uh, who's listening. We always say that to, to players yeah. in regards to scouting and recruiting, but the same applies to us as coaches. And and fortunately for me, the, the Indians had had an eye on me um, way back then. Hmm, so cool. Tuck, same question, man. Open up your ABCA experience. And then just as you chronicle your growth inside the association, again, finally jumping on that main stage, what's been kind of the 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 pulse? What, what's been kind of the feeling for you being part of this coaching association? Yeah, and let me start by saying this. I don't think there's a coach at any level of the game that, you know, if they, they do any digging for, for useful baseball knowledge, whether to make themselves better as coaches and obviously to make their players better, mm-hmm. maybe if it's just a dad looking to make his son better. I mean, I, I'm hard-pressed to think there's a coach anywhere at any level that if they use the ABCA as a resource that they're going to be underwhelmed in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've been a guy that honestly has has used all that ABCA kind of provides in, in a number of different capacities. I mean, everyone kind of looks at the convention as almost like the Super Bowl to this whole thing. And it is, it's a culmination of what the ABC does throughout the year. But there are plenty of years that I was relegated to staying at home just due to either financial reasons or family reasons. And I leaned on my buddies at other schools to, to, you know, kind of get their two cents as to who the best speakers were. And I bought those videos and it made me a better coach from my own office desk. And I think all that kind of, for me, at least started because my dad was the guy going to these conventions when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, when he started to realize that I was, someone passionate about this was pretty good at it. he wanted to you know equip me the best way that he could and he'd travel up to cherry hill new jersey to go mm. to those coaches conventions and he'd come back with every single thing in that expo theater <laughs> and yeah so I, I look back and kind of laugh at some of the things he brought home but he 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 made the effort man and the abc for me is it's not only a way for me to obviously network myself and and learn from a lot of the other uh coaches around the game but it's also a way for me to give back because so many other coaches gave to my dad in ways that shaped me as a player that it's pretty cool to get up there on the main stage myself and do the same. Gosh, I know you guys are going to crush it. I know how, how detailed you are, how much time and effort you're putting into this, but it's more of our coaches want this, man. I think you guys, again, are, are two of the thought leaders. When we think about creative ways to teach infield play, talk the game, talk different verbiage. And I know both of you have a, a long list of mentors and and folks that you've learned from, and I'm sure we'll get to those. But I want to go through a quick glance because we've done this 
on our former show, but a quick glance at your career in baseball. But I think the pressing point that you should make is what's been the lesson that you learned in that spot? What's been the one thing that when you look back at your time at, at each spot along the way that you really pull from? Uh, Tuck, kick us off with that, man. Again, now sitting as an associate head coach at Yale, what's your journey been and what have you taken from it lesson-wise? Yeah, I don't really have a very eclectic resume. Um, I've been here my whole my whole career. Man. Yeah. I mean, literally same office, same chair for the last 12 years. And um, it, it, I'm from New Haven, Connecticut. So I had some relationships with the people here at Yale, just being a local, mm-hmm. so to speak. And uh, I, I graduated from Holy Cross in 2006. And shortly thereafter, I, I joined the staff here. And um, so like, like, like I said, it's, it's not too much hopping around here. This is where home has always been and continues to be. But what I can tell you is this, I mean, even though I've been in the same place for you know, the last 12 years, there is absolutely no place that I think has challenged me in a good way than not only Yale, but just the Ivy League in general. And mm-hmm. what people don't realize is that there's so many more, like, rest- I don't want to call them restrictions, but parameters that we as coaches in the Ivy League are asked to, to work within. And yep. when I entered the game, you know, as a younger coach at 22, I basically took a very similar tact as I did as a player. I was going to look to outwork the competition. I was going to work to look, take as many ground balls as possible. And the simple fact of the matter is you can't outwork too many people in the Ivy League. You got to work smarter, ironically enough. Mm. And it's really forced me to clean my verbiage up to really make the most of however much time we do have with our players because it is limited. Um, and it's really forced me to, to grow in, in ways that I wish I had, <laughs> I had earlier on in my career. But I, I'm honest. To God, I'm a better coach having coached at this school and in this league, and I'm much more equipped if I ever did jump to another organization or program to to do a great job with more resources. And mm-hmm. um, you know, that being said, I mean it's you know it, it's an awesome spot with really cool kids that do a lot more than just play baseball, and they challenge me every single day. And those guys, those players, are the ones that um, you know drive me to do what I do because I know if if I'm foolish in my delivery. And I'm just regurgitating what either I learned as a player or if I don't have anything to back it up, they're going to poke holes in it, which is yeah. challenging but rewarding all at the same time. <laughs> you know, you've got one under your watch right now that's that I would think challenges you. Um, he's certainly embraced social media and uh, maybe taken a, a, a lesson from you in terms of how to really put out really good content. You want to open that up? Yeah, Daidai Otaka, man. I mean, for those coaches that are out there listening, he wants to be a coach. And, yeah. and he came to me asking what he thought I should do or what he should do and I say, get your thoughts out there, man. I mean, people are either going to agree with it or disagree with it, but it's it's going to help you grow as a player. It's going to help you grow as a coach and clean up your own delivery in ways that I can speak to. And um, if anyone's looking for an infield guy down the road, our current junior, Dai Otaka, he's as good as it gets um, for, for a kid his age. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm just going to post as many videos of him as I can because he's got his hands as good as anybody I've ever seen. So. <laughs> I'm not going to take credit for those. Sure. I love that. Um, Kai, do the same thing, man. Take us through your journey in baseball and then, you know, your stops. You have multiple stops. Take the major lesson that jumps out to you and give that to our coaches. Well, the first thing I'm going to go with is whatever you do, if you give Dai Dai your cell phone number, be prepared for questions. <laughs> True. Uh, because because True. he cares as much as anybody else. So that's my one Dai Dai plug. Mm. And let's hold off on the coaching career thing for, for a little bit because um, – if you watch him play, I think he's going to have an opportunity to, yeah. to play a little bit longer before he starts this thing. <laughs> no doubt. The uh, in, in regard to myself, um, I, I played Division Three baseball at, at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. Mm-hmm. And then I was fortunate enough to, to start my career there at the Division Three level. And to a certain extent, uh, that's why 
that's why there's a lot of similarities between Tuck and I style, because when you coach academic individuals, when you coach uh, student athletes who, uh, who are definitely there uh, for, you know, baseball second or baseball 1B, you have a certain level of clientele that they need to understand the why. You need to be crisp. You need to be concise. They they can poke holes in 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 in, uh, in thought process that you're you're freestyling that aren't planned out that aren't organized. And so that's a great level, um, whether it's the Ivy League or high academic Division three schools, um, to start your coaching career because you really got to have your stuff together. Um, you you really got to come with it every day. And so I, I love coaching. Quote, you know, quote unquote, smart guys to, to start my career. Sure. Um, uh, uniquely enough, at simultaneously the coaching at Division Three, I coach club baseball out of Bellevue, Washington. So a really affluent community, community, and a lot of uh, Division One and professional prospects came through our organization. And so that provided me a nice contrast, and it also helped me learn how to manage personalities and deal with recruiters from other schools um, and, and navigate parent relations. And so that was kind of my baseline education. The the, the club baseball really helped me with the mentorship and, and relationship building components and the, uh, the division three job really helped me with my organization and practice planning. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is in the division three level, all division threes aren't created equally. And there's such a drastic spectrum of uh, how academically rigorous one institution is to the next. And they're all in the same conferences. And so um, you're almost really prideful as one of the higher academic D3s in your conference to, to be competitive and, and navigate those, those situations. From there, I moved on to the University of Northern Colorado, uh, Division One institution in, in Greeley. Uh, historically rich back in the days of Tom Petroff and Dwayne Banks and those guys, they're, they're going to the Omaha with regularity. Mm-hmm. Then they went to D2 and then back to D1 in 04. Um, in their return to Division One, they only gave the program 3.7 scholarships. And that's how it stands today. And uh, I love that job because you're the underdog. You, um, you, you know, it is you show up every day with the lunch pail and you and your guys are almost bitter in a good way. You know, you're, you're every every weekend you're playing somebody with six, seven, eight more scholarships than you. And so the reason why I really clicked with that program is that playing sound defense, having fundamentals, handling the baseball, um, being in the right spot, communicating all the things that come with strong defensive things don't require any scholarships, don't require any draft picks. And so. Um, that was one of my, uh, I'm so fortunate that I, uh, I stumbled upon that position and it was kind of a perfect storm where that group was hungry for more information and, and I was, uh, I was hungry for more experience and to cut my teeth at the division one level. God, so good. Kai, jump on this, man. You talk about your passion for infield play and, uh, knowing what I know. And I know this, this, this passion for baseball runs deep within your family and your family tree. Open that up. Your passion for infield play. How has that really come to fruition? How's that really grown? Where's it come from? Well, I think uh, I think it all started with how horrible my bat speed was as a child, <laughs> and so naturally we, we we gravitate to things that we do yeah. better than things that we struggle with. And because I could field better than I could hit at a younger age, then you know you start just being attracted to that. And then there was something about like the the web gem era. You know, like when you're a kid in the 90s and Baseball Tonight is showing these plays and Omar Vizquel's sliding mm-hmm. and Robbie Alomar's barehanding the ball and Jeter's jumping. And, and it was so cool. It was, and, and I had a better shot of replicating that than I did at replicating 
you know, the home runs that were going on in that era. Yeah. Um, and from a physicality standpoint. And then that fell right in line with the baseball culture in Hawaii that's so influenced by Japanese baseball and so detail oriented and so disciplined and so uh, kind of based in like that thought process of martial arts. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where that foundation came from is that I became obsessed and passionate about the, the detail and the level of organization. As that passion grew, I think like a lot of young infield st- coaches, I started with my passion was really channeled to very structured movements. Always do this, only do this, never do this. And as that passion grew and I, and I watched more film and I reflected back into the original root of my passion, the, the sliding plays, the jumping plays, the running plays, you start finding more variability. And then I started trying to build those same athletic movements into the same details uh, that I started with. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. Thanks for cracking that open for us. Uh, Tuck, same question, man. Again, you talk about your dad being a coach and certainly there's some, there's some fuel for the fire there, but where does your passion for infield play come from? Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of reiterate what Kai said. I think it starts from my playing days and I think there's one, uh, you know, tidbit for people that are coming to our presentation. When, when that curtain rolls back, I, I guarantee everyone's going to be completely underwhelmed with the size of the two coaches on the stage. Um, if we are going to look more like the bat boys, I think from Yale and the Indians than the coaches. So I can attest to a, a portion of my career where, yeah, I had a tough time getting that thing out of the infield. Um, and, but I was always, I was still always in the lineup. And the reason for that was because my glove was the thing that I could, uh, I can bring to the table and bring to a lineup that few other guys could. So much like Kai, I, I was fortunate enough to play for some coaches all the way up to the ranks that valued what I was able to bring to the table in spite of the inefficiencies in my game. And it gave me an opportunity to kind of work through those growing pains. Um, it's how my college career honestly started. I didn't start that first game at Holy Cross. I played, we played Valparaiso and um, I got thrown out there in the bottom of the ninth up by a run and with a guy on second, I made a diving stab up the middle um, to like get the first or the second out. And it bought me a start the next day and I didn't look back from there. So um, you know, my appreciation and my recognition of how, you know, a diving play with a runner in scoring position saves the run is every bit as good as that, that hit that, that drives them in. It, it's something that I held near and dear to me when I played and carried over to myself as a coach um, and try to share with my players. So um, when you see your players and you try to teach them how important that side of the game is, um, you know, it just fuels the fire to try to be as creative and, um, you know, productive with your workouts as possible to allow them not just to perform at a high level, but understand why we're probably putting in as many reps into that side of the game as we can. Because the fact of the matter is this, those all league awards that all our guys get at the end of the year, it has nothing to do with the glove. It has everything to do with their bat and the offensive stats that they get. It's a very thankless part of the game, mm-hmm. um, in a bad way. And the more creative and, and more creative we can get with showing them and explaining them why it's so important and the better job that we can do showing them that it, that we value it and appreciate the effort they put in and appreciate the way they're able to perform on that side of the ball, um, I think that's half the battle then there. Oh, my gosh. That's outstanding. Well, Tuck, I was going to get into this earlier when we were talking about your career in baseball and spending those years there in the same chair at Yale. But reflect on how you've grown inside this space. And I'm thinking about the young infield coach, gets his first crack in college baseball, the things you were teaching. How have you grown into the coach that you are today? What's changed? Right, right. I think if you flash back, let's say 10 years or I was uh, 24, 25, um, what you would see, again, is, is a coach that was replicating his work ethic as a player, just 
doing his best if you were given 30 minutes worth of time with your infielders to squeeze as many in, uh, infield reps as you possibly could in that time. Um, and, and treating that like a badge of honor for good reason, because mm-hmm. no one's ever going to say that hard work isn't a main ingredient in this thing. But, um, you know, that, that paired with, and this is honestly going to probably come across in a surprising way to some, but I think one of the mistakes I made as an early coach was actually seeking out information from other coaches and taking that as gospel. Yeah. I think that I spent way too much time not trying to come up with my own system um, or test other systems, but just regurgitate something that wasn't my own. Yeah. Um, and it was basically just trying to throw a, a cookie cutter approach across my own players and my own program relative to what, you know, other coaches that truth be told my higher levels than when, than I was, mm-hmm. were, were doing with theirs. And I think the growth that I've had over these last 10 years is again, just, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, just a conscious shift from, Hey, we're going to take more reps than anyone in the country to, we're going to get more out of our, our infield sessions than anyone in the country. And, and how we do that, is, there, there's a number of ways we do that. We, we try to use some pretty creative teaching platforms that are very relative to our players. Mm-hmm. I think one of the best things that I was able to do was recognize the fact that when I made a binder and I, print, and I spent hours upon hours, whether it be from the offensive side or the defensive side, collecting all the information that I had and that I had collected over the years and put it in a binder, it was always very disheartening to like see that binder basically just be like combed out of a locker at the end of the year and, and clearly I've not never been tapped into yeah. other than the one day that I gave it to them. Yeah. And I started to realize that, you know, there are certain platforms that our guys use that are a little bit more creative, a little bit more eye catching that will just get their attention in ways that all I want as a coach is for them to be able to absorb the information and and to learn it and to understand it. And the more creative I got again, relative to where their eyes and attention were, the better that I got. Um, but I also just made a conscious effort of just researching and doing my own studying to both verify and maybe actually challenge some of the cues and beliefs that other coaches before us were teaching their guys. And there's as much positive or, or negatives that come out of that as positive. A lot of it, yeah, you're confirming what guys have been teaching you since you were 10 years old, but inevitably you're going to come and see to see some things that you're like, all right, that's actually not what these elite infielders are doing, you know, and I'm going to do a little bit more digging in that regard. And slowly but surely you kind of start to develop a lens for yourself. And a lot of times that lens is almost as relative to what you're seeing in your players day in and day out. And it's going to be relative to how old they are, their strengths, their weaknesses. And you kind of come into your own system. And that's what I would Mm. suggest and, and, and relay to any coach who's not only starting this thing out, but no matter what part of their career they're in, I mean, what we believe in, and what our quote-unquote pillars are, they're always going to be relative to the level of play that we're in, what our players do well, what they don't do well. That's always going to shape our models here. And um, just the simple effort to, to study, to confirm the things that we were teaching, but also challenge some of the things that we were teaching, it's made me a better coach in more ways than one. Mm, that's so good. You know, I was laughing as you were talking. You know, Kai and I spent some time out in Arizona, and we talked about this as the, the maturation of an infield coach. I think too often, uh, Tuck, I, I can tell you, I think everybody can can resonate with that feeling as you, you teach what you have in front of you, you teach what you've gathered from other people because you don't know better to have your own exactly. system. You don't know enough to create your own system. And so I always think, and, and Kai, you back me up on this because I definitely want to hear how you've grown in this space, but I think one of the key distinguishable uh, traits of a young info coach is ask him what he thinks. Is it push through or is it funnel? And and usually it's one or the other, and it's there's no way that you funnel. There's no way that you push through. 
because I believe this. That was a, a distinguishable point for me as a young infield coach was, man, you just you just don't funnel. You can't field a ball that deep. Well, go watch Major League Baseball players. Go watch different plays that you have to funnel the baseball in. But it's, again, you're, 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 I'm using that for my college coach. My college coach taught me that. So that's what I knew that was relative to me standing in front of my group of guys, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think – for me, you you hit the nail on the head. You in a in a in a like a micro sense, but the biggest way I've grown yep. as a, as an infield coach and a coach in general is become more flexible. Yes, right. And yep. so that's the word I would I would say flexible in, in the way I interact with the guys. In the beginning, I was just like talk. I, you want to you have so much success as a player by being competitive, by being intense, by being hardworking. Mm-hmm. Um, you think that your job is to now put that onto your team and project that onto your guys, yeah. and so. I wanted my my intensity to be bottled and replicated by them. You know, that's what I thought my job was that's was it. to you know to be hard and to be intense and to be structured. And the same thing is what I thought for my system. It was it was taking the information I've been given my entire life, just like Tuck said, and regurgitating it and repackaging it into a into an intense, really structured system. Now, the great thing about baseball is it does reward structure. It does reward organization. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that somebody who teaches the wrong thing but is really, really structured and good at creating culture can win games. Mm-hmm. You know, but that does that's not necessarily like the pinnacle of player development. And so on the physical technique side, um, just like on the mentality side, I had to become more flexible. I had to watch a lot more film. And I think that's at the root of tokenized development. It's just consuming video of high-level infielders, discovering patterns. As Tuck would say, patterns are everywhere. Discovering patterns, be it with the feet or be it with the hands, like you referred to how the elite infielders do move both forward and backwards, do use both one and two hands. And then realizing, okay, if this flexibility exists amongst the elite infielders, then this flexibility has to exist within my teaching style. (laughs) Right. That's dead on, 100%. Um, we're going to open this conversation because we're going to get into some of these details. I want you guys to share as much as you're willing to share, uh, certainly to not deflate your presentation on stage, but I think more just carry a great conversation about infill play. Also, for our listeners, if you haven't listened yet, go back to episode 24. Kai Tuck, also Billy Boyer is now at Seattle U. Uh, those guys talking about infill play, great content in that, and we're hoping to really double down on that and expand more. Uh, Kai, I want you to start this one. We've we've referenced the basic building blocks for infielders, and I want you to to what are some of again expanding upon uh, your last thoughts and comments, but also are there standards inside what you do, or when you literally look at the culture inside your infield group, what's it smell like, what's it taste like, what's it feel like to be part of your group? I think for me, I've tweeted about this before, but if I was if I was to encapsulate it on a bumper sticker, uh, I, I would use the word gritty and pretty. And so gritty to me is just like that lunch pail carrying everyday attention to detail. Yeah. And pretty is simple, smooth, in rhythm, and repeatable. And so a lot of people, you know, the old school, it's like, what, what is the value in looking pretty? Just, I heard so many info coaches say, just to get the guy out. You know, just get, just get him out. Mm-hmm. Just have him go back to the dugout. If he's safe at first, you did it wrong. And if he's, if he's out and he's back in the dugout, uh, you did it right. And I don't, I don't think it's that simple. You know, I think I think the best infielders in the world are, find their way to always be in rhythm, find a way to always be adjustable, find a way to always make the simplest move possible um, as opposed to the most expansive. And so there is something to be said about the old school aesthetics of watching a guy field and saying it looks good. And, and um, 
And if you can do that in a variety of different plays, then that's what I call pretty. And so I want that mix of the two. In regard to pillars that I believe in, um, it all comes down to kind of what you're practicing, why you're practicing, how often you're practicing things. Um, in terms of having pillars for technique, I'll let Tuck cover that. But my pillars in, in that regard, in terms of practice distribution, come down to in-game frequency. So how often does something happen? The current success rate. So is your group good or bad at that task? The degree of difficulty. So what is the expected completion rate? So you might be bad at it at a 50% clip, but that's 50% is when it's completed in the game. It's a really tough play. Yeah. So you have to be reasonable. And then the last thing is the physical stress associated with that task. So you know, if we're going to work on plays on the run all over and over for 30 minutes, my guys are going to be toast. Hmm. You know, so finding the balance between physically stressful and, and and not physically stressful. And so those are kind of the, the two sets of pillars for me, the pretty and gritty thing in terms of overarching and then in, um, in terms of practice distribution. Does it reflect what we see in the game? Are we currently bad or good at it? How tough is it? And uh, and uh, and how physically strenuous is it? Talk, anything to add to that? Or can you maybe pull back the curtain on, on what it feels like to be inside the Yale infield group in terms of your meetings, yeah. your talks? Yeah, open that up. Yeah. Yeah, we, we talk, if, if there's one word I can use to kind of summarize and sum up, like what we're trying to do, it's, it's be efficient. You know, I think mm -hmm. defensive efficiency is something that we, we're actually slowly but surely introducing our, our guys to. And, you know, the term in sabermetrics world is literally every time a ball ends up between white lines, how many times do you turn it into an out? And we obviously did some pretty cool things last year on yep. the fielding percentage front. Um, but truth be told, even though we led the nation in fielding percentage last year, the thing that I'm most proud of for our guys is the fact that they were in the top 10 in um, defensive efficiency. I think they were ninth in the country in that regard. UCLA was the first in the country. And it speaks to the ability to, to yeah, play at a high clip and be very sure-handed, but also play fast and, and get to baseballs that maybe other guys can't get to, um, which is the most important thing. And obviously, we're, out, we're trying to do things in practice so that if and when a die does get to those, those balls, that they are able to play at that high clip. I think there's a lot of ingredients that go into that sauce. Um, they got to be able to recognize, you know, a number of different hops that we, we identify and, and throw their way every single day. Um, they got to be able to be very versatile across all of their lanes. They got to be able to be as comfortable utilizing one hand as, as they are too, and, and just as comfortable going to their backhand side as they are living on a ball right at them. Um, they need to be very versatile with their slot when they throw. Um, and know when and how to use the, those slots, not just being able to throw from a low slot, but knowing when and how to use it. Um, and then obviously the internal clock component is something that, you know, I get it. You know, you could put a stopwatch on every single rep and get guys going at a high clip. But I've always said this. There's, there's something to be said for an infielder taking the time that he's given. It's, you can draw some parallels to, honestly, basketball. You know, the, the plays that you as a coach draw up when you got 10 seconds left on the clock are different than when you got two. Um, and as an infielder, it's the same thing. If you got, you know, a, a ball hit at you, that's, you know, a hundred miles an hour and a guy coming down the line at a five Oh clip, you got some time to use to close that distance, to, mm -hmm. to make that throw that much more high percentage. And if you get rid of it quick, I mean, you, you're a knucklehead. So, <laughs> um, and then there's obviously some plays that are, you know, going to force you to exchange quickly and get rid of it. But that, those are things that, again, like we prioritize, we see value in. So we try to implement that in our practice setting and, and push come to shove when this whole thing's said and done i think yeah we're, we're trying to define efficiency with our guys but more most importantly for me as a coach while i want them to understand it 
there's an element of autopilot that I want every single one of our guys to be able to, to have where they're not thinking about the hop, where they're not mm -hmm. thinking about their foot patterns. They're not thinking really about anything that we're talking about in the fall. We're slowly but surely like going from the classroom setting where we're very technique driven to just performance driven where we do just get the out. But when they do have that tact, they have, they're equipped with the rhythms and the patterns that we feel are efficient to collect as many outs as possible come season. Wow. Do you feel like your guys yeah. got there last year? I do. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You see certain things that you're like, wow, he doesn't even know what he's doing that. But yeah. He did. You know, like, and it, you see it most on plays where it's true reaction plays. You know, I yeah. think the plays that you have a lot of time is actually the times where you're going to see some guys like getting their own heads. But when you see them just react to certain balls and do it in ways that you know are, or what we drilled home, that's that's the coolest thing to see as a coach. I think one thing that Tuck hit on the head that I couldn't agree with more yep. is, is I think that you have to design practice. You have to have jargon. You have to have a, a, a depth of detail behind your practice that is really complex. But And so people get afraid of that complexity, and they think that's going to make my guys rigid. That's going to make my guys stiff. That's going to make my guys overthink. Mm -hmm. When in actuality, if you have great depth to the way you practice and you truly create versatility and hit on all things, you're going to allow your guys to be more instinctual, more intuitive, more automated, more athletic in the game because they're going to encounter things that they've seen before. So a lot of coaches love saying kiss, 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 keep it simple stupid right yeah. that's like especially the generation before us hey you guys are out there reinventing the wheel uh, and that's my least favorite thing then don't get mad at your guys when they screw up a tough play because yeah. you kept it simple in practice and so now it's because the game has become really complex my thought process and i think tuck is in the same boat is if you think complexly about practice if you hit on all the plays on all the hop types on all the lane on all the body control plays on all the ways we handle the ball your guys are going to be more simple when it comes to gameplays. Patterns are going to emerge, and they can revert back to those. And so it's all it's mm. it's he he hit the basketball reference on the head. Yeah. Our our infielders are not set shooters. They're not three point specialists who are going to come in the game and have to accomplish a singular task. Right? We can't truly get there just by putting up a ton of buckets. Our infielders are creative. They have to create their own shot. They have mm. to be reactionary to everything that's happening. Um, and and so. To me, the complex practice, the practice that's, that looks like the game and is tougher than the game and has the variety of the game, that's what prepares you for the game. That's what makes you simple when it comes to the game. That, that's exactly where my thoughts were. This, this is actually this is the epitome from an infill perspective of training in a way that's faster than the game or more complex than the game. So the game seems easy, right? Yeah, no I, doubt. Yeah. No doubt. I think, yeah, go ahead, Kai, my fault. No, 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 no. Go ahead, Tuck. Yeah, I, I think that if there's another like analogy I can I can create, it's if you throw the full gamut of, at our guys, like I was was mentioned before with with hops and lanes and all that stuff. I actually draw a lot of parallels to like dancing <laughs> because okay. all right, and the reason I say this because when I got married and Kai just got married, maybe his wife's in the same boat as mine. I had to dance that first dance, <laughs> and the first time I learned that stupid dance, right? My I knew exactly where my feet are, and I was. The, the slowest, stupidest looking dancer in the world. But the more you do it, the more you understand the rhythm. Not only can I, was I able to do that dance, um, you know, the day of my wedding, I can do it anywhere now, right? Yeah. In a phone booth, yeah. I can do it at a shortstop. It's a rhythm that I put it on autopilot. And once you, you put it on autopilot, you can, you can now let the ball take the lead, 
so to speak. And that's why I always like reference the dancing side of things because you're not an elite in the infield. The ball is. It's going to tell you what you have to do and where you need to go. And if the right rhythms and patterns are, are ingrained in you, those things should come out if the practices are as productive as you want them to be. What we should have had was like the father-in-law, as soon as you got done with that dance, roll your ground ball and see if you could get a guy out. That's what he did. Okay. He did. <laughs> was he out or safe? Oh, out by a mile. Crushed. Yeah. I think he was yeah. running a 5-2 down the line. Um, yep. Open this up, and, and Kai, I want you to start this one off. We talk about catch play, and we talked about this um, on our first episode that we all did together. We talked about catch play, but I think the, one of the distinguishable factors for me was was coming up as a young infield coach and, and not really paying attention to this area. This is the quote-unquote uh, for, for most coaches, kind of let them go get loose, and then they'll come to me, and that's when the teaching begins. When um, I had a chance to work with Brian Green, which, Kai, I know we've talked about what BG uh, did for you in terms of a young infield guy, and Tuck, I'm sure the same. Um, our first practice at Kentucky where we really broke down in, you know, catch play, and there were things that we were training our guys to do in catch play that we knew were going to show up, number one, in the game, but in the next phase of whatever we're doing in practice, we were going to try to teach them in ways – through catch play to, to prepare for the game. And so, Kai, when you think about that that routine that's inside of that, and I've seen some of your former videos, especially from UNC, when you were uh, really making guys get in different body positions and trust different arm angles, uh, open that up. What are some ways that maybe coaches can train their guys inside that, that time of, of the schedule? First thing is that it's all about efficiency in terms of practice efficiency. And sure. playing catch is one of the only things you can count on that you're going to do every single day of the game. Right. Right. Some games you're going to have an opportunity to take a ground ball. Some days you aren't. Some days you're going to have an opportunity to do dry work. Some days you aren't. Some days you're going to take in foot outfield, but based on weather, some days you aren't. You know, but the only thing for sure you are going to do on the day of the game is play catch. And so I think any time you play catch, um, you're, those, are, those are live reps where the ball is in flight and the ball is on, on, in route to you, and you can take advantage of those reps and convert them into defensive opportunities. Now, my thought process has changed a little over time, and I do understand the sacredness of everybody's arm being different and the value of feeling good, lubed up, and warm. Mm -hmm. And so at this point in my career, I believe strongly in allowing guys the opportunity to truly warm up on the way out. And then on the way back in, once we reach max distance, that's when all the, the magic happens. Okay. When I think about making infield play, I mean infield catch play, more preparatory for the game, I think about it a couple of different ways. And they, are, they start with T, so that way they can be easy to remember. So the first T is tasks, right? So you have throwing tasks and you have receiving tasks. So throwing tasks are throwing on the run, initiating a double play, relay, uh, converting a double play, and any of those things. A receiving task is tagging, it's stretching, it's redirecting, it's relaying. So the first way you add variety and you, you allow your, your catch play to be more game-like and, um, and be better preparation is you incorporate tasks. And you can do a couple a day, you can do one for every distance, you can do one a day, whatever it may be. It's just like I said, it's free extra reps that were always going to be there. So adding tasks for the thrower and adding tasks for the receiver. The second T to me is, is throwing slot. Right. So having the versatility to make sure we just don't throw out of our money slot for the entire catch play. Right. Oftentimes we'll throw out of that high three quarter where it's the most pain free, the most comfortable. We'll make 50 throws over 10, 15 minutes. And the first ground ball of the game is a slow roller hit by a left handed hitting leadoff guy. And now I've got to throw it on the run out of a low slot for the first time. I'm not surprised when I miss arm side. I'm not surprised when he ends up on second. Um, 
that has to be done ahead of time. The, the third T for me is tempo. And Tuck alluded to this. You don't get extra credit for throwing guys out by 20 feet. You know, and so every play has, creates this internal talk, has its own rhythm, is to its own song. And so I like having catch play um, to different tempos. You know, sometimes we go fast, sometimes we go slow, sometimes we go in the middle. Sometimes it's an entire session. Sometimes there's a singular player in charge for rotating the tempo. But that's, that's kind of the third T. The fourth T for me is, 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 is target. What am I aiming at? Am I thoughtlessly throwing to the entire body? To, you know, or am I aiming to a specific point? You know, mm-hmm. then am I aiming at the chest? Well, what if it's a tag play? So then where am I aiming? What if it's a play that he might have to stretch on? Where am I aiming? Right. And, and Tuck's talked about this before on Twitter that the belt buckle target is better for stretching. The, the knee, the hip knee target is better for tagging. You know, the, the chest and then the, what, is it right shoulder or left shoulder that your, your partner prefers for a pivot? And so having a small target in mind, because small targets makes big difference come game time. And so those are the ways I think about amping up catch play. You don't have to have an exact prescription. You don't have to have an exact script. But if you are including tasks, if you are creating variability with tempo, if you are creating variability with throwing slots, and you are moving targets around tactically so they have an in-game result, I think you can you can sneak in 20, 30, 40, 50 more defensive reps in a day, 100, 200, 300, 1,000 in a week, and, and then a, a really high number over the course of the season. God, that's so great. Uh, Tuck, follow that one up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we got a, apparently an outside-the-box way of thinking about catch play, and I'll start with this. I think... When anybody asks, like, what do you guys do during catch play? They immediately take their mind to, like, right or left field. I think everyone's on the same page in that regard. Like, okay, we're going down the line, get loose. And we do that, all right? Now, our tact when we're down the lines is this, similar to, like, a runner, right? Before he sprints, he or she sprints, he's got to get, like, a range of motion to, as Kai kind of alluded to before, like, lube up for for the demands of of the task ahead Mm -hmm. and i always felt like if i jumped right down the right or left field line and tried to do something position specific it didn't feel right i wasn't properly like loose with the range of motion that i would have wanted so Mm -hmm. what we do is we send them down the lines we do give them eight minutes to essentially get their range of motion get everything hot and then the only difference between us and everybody else is when we think of catch play it's not down the lines it's back in our office space and the infield so mm. we, uh, we get them at their positions, and, and that's actually our time of practice to do speed work, we call it, like, where we're just, like, we think it's the most appropriate time to ask them to go really fast because they've been able to prepare accordingly. Okay. Um, but we get them in their office doing things literally where they're going to be asked to do them during the game, not just from, like, a rep standpoint, but, like, just a familiarity with their surroundings. And the only difference between us and, and what I think the more traditional way of looking at uh, catch play is, we do it on the field and you know, it, it, we're, and the minute our arms hot, we just say, okay, let's, let's just not hang out near the foul poles. Let's get it second base. Let's get around the bag. Let's do things in the player of the diamond that we're going to be asked to do them in a game. And I think that there's some value to that as well. Now I also understand that not everybody has that available to them. And if yeah. I didn't, I'd probably get a lot more creative with what I'm asking guys to do down the right or the left field line. But, um, that's our tact. It, it, it also, for what it's worth, um, this is something I actually learned from Pete Mackey, who's the uh, pitching coordinator for the Twins right mm-hmm. now. He, he was at Duke, and he yeah. was at Columbia a few years prior. If, let's say, our guys are, are hot before that eight minutes is up, they're still asked to throw. 
Um, and I tell them, hey, you know, here's some suggestions based on what I'm seeing from you. If you, if you have an extra minute or two mm-hmm. to uh, work on something, like mm-hmm. here's what I would suggest. But do what you feel is right. Do what you feel like you need to work on. There's an element of perceived choice that goes a long way with players, especially when you know there's going to come a portion of practice that you're going to dictate a little bit more, that you're going to ask them to do what you want. Um, so that in and of itself, it provides a balance that I think makes for a little bit of a healthier day for both the player and the coach. Yeah. Um, and I see guys getting creative with what they're doing on the right or left field line. And many times they'll come and ask me, hey, what should I work on here? Or, hey, I'm having a tough time on the run. What would you do you know, if I have a minute or two left um, in left to uh, just get myself ready for when I, I hop over at third base and I have to make that play? So mm-hmm. um, you don't need to box yourself into that. You can get on the diamond. You can get on the diamond and do a lot of the same things you're asking those guys to do out there. And truth be told, I think it gets them even a little bit more game ready. Open that up. What's that look like? If they're on the infield, I'm imagining a coach right now is setting his, his guys up. How are they continuing to play catch? What's that look like for you? Right. So let's just say like it'll change every day. There's an element of, hey, we're going to go fast when you guys are ready to go fast, but we're going to change up what we're doing in that uh, portion of the, uh, whether it be a team practice or an individual session. Yeah. Um, you know, the last time we went out there, we worked on double play pivots from the second base side, the shortstop side. And also the same type of footwork that you would get almost if there was a bunt in front of home plate um, and the catcher fired to second base, you almost, that play turns into something like, a, you know, almost like first baseman footwork. And um, basically what we do during that portion is we're asking them to be very technique driven, but also docking the times that each of those guys have to not only confirm maybe what we think is the quickest way to do things, but also give them an opportunity to maybe test out some things that they feel is uh, or are, uh, a little bit quicker. And if they can point to a time during that portion of practice that is definitively quicker than what I'm telling them to do, by all means, it's, it's, it goes back to the element of trying to be efficient and playing fast. Um, but we'll do double play feeds. We'll do a variety of foot patterns, whether it be a four-step, two-step, on the run. We'll change up the lanes, change up the hops on any given day. The, op- the, the options that you have at that portion of the practice, um, they're endless. And you can get them as bland or creative as you want. But for us, we ask them to go fast, and we ask them to do it in their office space. And then from there, we transition to more traditional, hey, we're going to get a handful, a, a number of ground balls here. We're less trying to you know, tap into that highest gear and more to be slow the game down, take the time that we're given, be a little bit more technique-driven. Is that – and continue to build upon this. Are those everyday drills for you? Do you have a set routine yes. each day that they do? Can you open that up? Yes. So it, it's, it's a little different in the fall. Then I would say happens in the spring. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're whether you're a, a hitting coach, a pitching coach, or an infield coach, you're trying to kind of build up the engine in the fall in ways that you know you can hopefully maintain it come the spring. So mm-hmm. what we what we refer to as speed work, basically, you know, September through February 15th turns into clean work. <laughs> we just we change the name where we're not asking them to go a thousand miles an hour. We're just asking them to really just make sure that the patterns that we're ingraining are. Are, are continuing to be ingrained. Those, yeah. but it is an everyday. Let's say five minutes. Um, so when after they transition from the right or the left field line, it's about five minutes worth of speed work, um, and then we transition to some more mass ground ball circuits. Um, you know, whether we're, I, I'll tell you what, what we've actually done an, an adamant job of doing is actually getting fungos from both sides of the dish. I think there's been a lot of talk about spin. And people kind of whip out the machine. And there's some true value to the machine that we use a number of times. But if you ask me to go take ground balls and 
identify what truly unique spin. I feel like I notice spin off a lefty bat versus a righty bat a little bit more than like fungo spin versus machine spin. That may just be me and our infielders, but I really think that there's an element of going righty and lefty fungos that's helped our guys. Um, you know, but we do do the speed stuff. We do do mass ground balls. And at the very end of practice, we do some sort of tracking just from a purely efficient level where we're taking about 10 minutes worth of ground balls, whether it be off of a machine or off of a fungo, where again, we're not asking them to go full throttle, but we are keeping track of, of, uh, you know, how efficient they are in that 10 minute span and also tracking if they do falter where and how. So those are our everyday, uh, we, we, if you had to kind of give bullet points here, it's speed work. We call it foundation work. Um, we call it a stock market basically because we track it all and it's a little bit competitive. This is the type of stuff that I'll talk about down in Dallas. Yeah. Um, you know, the stock market is the opportunity for them to just kind of not only see how they're, they're doing personally, um, for month to month, but also obviously how they're stacking up with their, with their peers, you know, Mm. which is always fun. Yeah, no doubt. doubt. That's everyday stuff. Kai, same question, man. Everyday stuff when you're when you're having those those lower level those Indian infielders and you're really trying to figure out how to uh, pull the most out of them and, and really enhance your day. Uh, is there a routine that they're, that's inside what they do? Is there a set? Again, that's part of a continuation of your culture that you're setting in place. But is there a continuation of drills that they do every day or any variances of those? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm right there with Tuck. I think the magic for coaching happens right between the completion of catch play yeah and and live ground balls yeah so a lot of people jump right from catch play into live ground balls and i think there's that window where you can have road reps and coach fred reps and kneeling reps and transition drills where you can really dive into into teaching mm-hmm. and, and creating that variability and what i love about what tuck's talking about with speed work is you're trying to get the guys to figure out what's as fast as I can and what's as fast as I can. Yeah. You know, which version is the best? Because in the game, only fast as you can play. As fast yeah. as you can is a play. You know, and so, but how do you figure that out? You got to get them going. And by being in close proximity and rolling reps, you can control the lane and the hop type and the direction. Let's say you have a guy who's really good going off the backside of the bag on a pivot and really bad coming through. Well, every time his cycle comes through, unbeknownst to him you can feed him to his left forcing him to through and his double play partner could be a guy who's really good at working through and really bad at creating direction off the back of the bag you can flip him to the back right you have a guy who's really bad in the two-handed lane and really good in the one-handed lane versus the other guy you're not leaving it up to fate of the fungo or the machine or bp to create the reps that that guy has a weakness at Those drills, what he's calling speed work, what I call transition drills, to me, that's where the magic happens because the coach has the control to manipulate the drill to make what those guys need. The second reason I like it, and call me new age, call me new school, is I like being in closer proximity to the guys. There's something to be said about being able to talk from 10 feet away, from 5 feet away, right besides a guy, pull a guy out of the drill, and the the show continuing on. Mm -hmm. Versus when you fungo and you stop it and you're shouting, even if your message is positive, it seems gruff. It seems intense from 120 feet away because I'm having a – and then when I'm stopping and I'm shouting to you, I'm not hitting the ball to the next guy. The show's not going on. And so I think that's where that magic happens, that transition, those primer activities that get you going fast, that get you going in the right direction, that establish those patterns. Um, From there, I'm just like Tuck. I uh, I slide over into a a mass ground ball routine. But to me, it's all about creating variability that can I use right and left-handed fungal hitters, whether it's coaches, 
or, or pitchers? Can we hit from different directions? So if I'm a right-handed hitter and I'm hitting right-handed coach and I want to create left-handed direction, maybe I move up the third baseline and I crossfire to the first baseman, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, using drop ball where coaches are tossing to each other so the coach has two hands on the bat at point of when he fires a swing at a point of the contact. So create more velocity, mm-hmm. um, hitting from different proximity, closer and farther away from from uh, uh, from home plate or from the fielders, uh, using machines. And so if you come out and you watch us practice, you're going to see fungal hitters at different distances, at different angles, and a machine somewhere involved. Whether that machine is feeding reps that are ground balls or in the air or on a line or replicating thrown balls, but that's how we're getting a high variability of reps. Um, in addition to that, one thing I think I do a lot more than a lot of other folks is additional tasks, the, the tasks uh, that are required by an infielder to complete outs. So we catch a lot of infield fly balls. You know, we do a lot of feeds. We do a lot of pivots. We do a lot of relaying and redirecting. We do a lot of tagging. We do a lot of stretching and catching because this creates position versatility. It allows them to be comfortable playing other positions, but it also it also teaches them the versatility of the move. For example, if I am a completing a second base double play pivot, that means I'm, I'm taking the ball from directly in front of me and I'm turn, taking it 90 degrees to my left, right? I'm making a right turn with the baseball. Yeah. Well, if I'm completing that pivot, people associate that with second baseman, but that's the pivot a right-handed first baseman makes when he's redirecting to control a trail runner on a single to second, uh, right field. That's the direction a third baseman takes the ball when he's initiating the double play, right? Hmm. So there's so many. What about stretching and catching? We, we, we teach that to first baseman so much. And then in the game, when we run a bunt play and the pitcher, pitcher surprise, surprise, throws it wild to the third baseman, and he's got to stretch and catch. We're like, why? You have the wrong foot in the bag. You know, why didn't you slide over and use the other side of the bag? Oh, wait a minute. He hasn't practiced that. He's been the guy throwing it to the first baseman. He's never stretched and caught. And then the same goes for infield fly balls, right? They go up in the sky forever. We assume them to be outs, but are they really outs? Are you tracking that? You know, 18% of major league infield outs last year were infield fly balls. So that's a pretty high clip that you need to be comfortable with wind and sun and bleachers and spence and warning track. And, and going back and, and, and interacting with the outfielders and each other. So that's mm. kind of what my our daily routine looks like. It, it's transitioning from that catch play into those transition drills and then into a vast v- variety of live reps, both on the ground, in the air, on the line, and thrown. So good. Uh, I want to stay on this with you, Kai, because my, my question inside of all that, the everyday drills – is how unique has this been in terms of bringing this to the Indians or to these players in particular? But I think that leads into the next question about training environment. Um, you bringing a different training environment, different verbiage, different different tasks, different um, ways of accomplishing, again, taking advantage of the time within your schedule. What have been maybe your overall guiding philosophies that, that you really stand by that you try to bring to these sessions with your guys? Are there standards within that? Can you just open up that training environment? What, what, what's it feel like? What's it look like? Well, I, I think the, the, stand, the sheer standard I'm trying to follow is having a long list of what happens in a game and how often it had happened yeah. and making sure practice reflects that. Plan accordingly. Yep. Yeah, and plan accordingly. That, like, it, to put, keep it simple, right? Watch your guys play a game. You don't need film. You don't need advanced <laughs> tracking system. You mm-hmm. don't need advanced analytics. You need a steno pad 
and a tally mark. And when a guy tags somebody, mark it. When a guy relays, mark it. When a guy redirects, mark it. When a guy throws the first, mark it. And you will be surprised that the vast distribution of outs comes from all over the place. And at the end of the day, our guys need to be able to handle balls in the air, on the line, on the ground, to four different directions, in front of them, behind them, to their right and to their left. Mm. And outs are acquired in so many different ways, and they're all counted equally on the scorebook, but they're all not created equally. You know, yeah. And so, am I getting those outs? Am I getting those outs? I cannot expect them to complete those plays and games if we haven't at least introduced it. Yeah. If not, I'm just sheerly leaving up to chance. You know, and so that's kind of at the base of, of the philosophy of that practice design. Okay. Can, can I jump on this one more time? Just in terms of uh, you maybe changing the culture within what's what's happening there on those fields of surprise. Has that been unique? Has that been different? Was there a learning curve with those guys or, or even you? Yeah, I think the biggest thing to understand, the first thing, I would be remiss to not mention that the, my predecessors, my mentors within the organization yeah. have a long track record of creating effective infielders. No doubt. They have some guys named Lindor and Ramirez and Kipnis that and and and, and Diaz and Urshela and Gonzalez that are homegrown that were trained and mentored by the men I work with. Yeah. And so it was a very fortunate circumstance for me to walk into. It wasn't a struggle. It wasn't like a place that needed help. This yeah. is a place that was already doing well and I just got to be another piece of the puzzle. Um I have the good fortune in my department to be, you know, it's kind of like, a, you know, there's there's a couple guys responsible for infield play. John McDonald is the defensive coordinator, a longtime big leaguer. And then Travis Fryman is a special assistant. Robbie Thompson's a special assistant. Carlos Berger is a special assistant. So all guys, I always joke around and tell people, hey, you know, we average 10 years of big league service time in our department. <laughs> you know, you, if you count my zero and you yeah. count all of their, their 15s or their 12s or whatever, it adds up to 10, 10 yeah. each. But anyway... <laughs> The cool thing for me has been getting to work with them within the context of the system. Yeah. And so it, now when we have all these drill varieties and all these stations set up um, and, and we can create these double play pivot drills that have, you know, all these different directions. Robert Thompson can get out there and he can be like, hey, in this section, I used to do this move. In this section, I used to do this move. Now, he never potentially practiced it as sections before when he was a player, but he can remember and now you're taking that playing experience, you're taking that ability, and you're packaging it into a way that the guys understand. And so it's so fun for me because I'll sit there, and, and John McDonald and Travis Ryman will both teach two different races to complete the same move. And I'm sitting there just writing frantically because I'm like, now we got more options. Exactly. That's what we want. We want more options. Yeah. We want our guys to have more golf clubs in their bag. And so that way when they get in the rough or in the sand trap, they're not panicking because they only have an iron. You know, and so that's uh, that's kind of how my existence with the Indians has been. It was such a steep learning curve because these guys were already so good at what they did. And so my introducing new things was fun um, because then I got to hear their versions of completing those new things. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's awesome. And, Tuck, you've alluded to some of this, but more specifically, the training environment that you're creating what are maybe those overall guiding philosophies that really guide your practices and, and how you train right. your players? Right. Yeah. And I spoke to a couple of the, you know, larger topics earlier in terms mm -hmm. of us wanting to be really efficient and, and making an adamant point about having a portion of practice where we're trying to be fast. And yep. something that I wish I, I tapped into earlier is, 
you know, I, I feel as though an infield play, when we don't make that adamant point of asking them to tap into that high gear, and, and then the play in a game demands that they do that, there's an element of feeling rushed because they haven't been there before. Mm. And I think asking them to go full throttle or close to it and finding that sweet spot in terms of like what gear they want to get into to still play at, a, at an efficient level, it, it just gives them a sense of familiarity um, of going fast to the point where you know when the ball asks them to do it or the runner asks them to do that, there's you know they've been there before yeah. and they've been there on a very consistent basis. So again, the, the speed and the efficient side of things that, that's something we always keep an eye on. And, and things though that I think are maybe unique to our program, maybe not. Um, it's it's uh, it's twofold uh, as far as on the field stuff. Um, I think there's a lot of fluidity amongst our infielders, mm-hmm. um, almost by necessity because our roster size is so much smaller than, than others across Division One baseball. Um, we ask all of our guys to, to play every single position over the course of the, uh, the fall season. Love it. All of our first basemen, they get reps at third, short, and second base. Um, we've even taken it a step further here and made an adamant point about having um, our quote-unquote middle guys you know, jump over to the first base um, uh, side of the bag, even if it's just to maybe um, you know, catch the reps being done by another group of four infielders. There's an element of doing that that if we ever did ask them to go over there or we see a play that is transferable, you know, and yeah. Kai was kind of mentioning it earlier where, you know, there's a, there's a stretch at third base. Well, if we have our third baseman play first base over the course of practice, then they're, they're getting that rep drilled home whether they realize it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fluidity that we have um, and, and what we ask our guys to do over the course of the practice day um, I think it breeds some versatility. That's always good in case a guy gets hurt over the course of the year. You certainly don't want to send a guy out to a, a part of the field that he's never been before. So there's an element of on-the-field productivity that ultimately kind of gives you some insurance um, you know, over the course of the year. But then behind the scenes, I, I think the biggest part of our environment that I, I take pride in, it's, it's the way we track. Um, mm-hmm. I want every single day our guys to come in knowing how they did the day before. I think that's really important just to have a guy, if he had a great day, know that his coach recognized that. And we, we have report cards that we give our guys literally after every single defensive workout. Um, and it gives them a sense holistically in terms of how they did, how they stacked up against the other seven guys in the infield unit. Um, and then if there are any talking points that we feel are important to share with them, it's an opportunity for us to do that. And it's nothing crazy. It's, it's nothing that if you looked at and, and you saw the time that we put into it or, over any given day, it's not carving out too much time over the course of the day. But if you look at it over the course of the entire fall season, you're really able to create a culture here where not only are guys walking into to work every day knowing how they did, how to get better from day to day, but we're making an added point of looking at things through a little bit of a bigger picture so that we can look them in the eye and know where they're really strong, mm-hmm. where they're not as strong, and we can make the day that much more productive for them, not for the unit, not for the coach, but for them. And we'll run these guys through that mass ground ball circuit. And there's many times where, you know, if you do have a guy who's really struggling in his one-handed lane or a certain foot pattern, while everybody else in the team is maybe working on one thing, we'll ask that guy to, to uh, hone in on that part of his game to, to make him and, and that workout all the more productive for him. And I think our ability not just to, like, say, hey, you're struggling in this area. Um, why don't you work on this? But to back it up with data, to back it up with, Hey, I've been tracking this, been looking at it on video. Here's where you're going wrong. Here's how to maybe fix it. Let's spend the time to make that part of your game as strong as possible. I, I think that's where our guys really grow. And it's, again, thanks not necessarily to hours upon hours every single day. It's almost like 30 to 40 minutes every single day that accumulates over the course of time that 
we find a lot of worse in. Mm. You know, uh, Tuck, I had a youth coach that reached out uh, this past week and asked about really trying to figure out positions for his players. And this is a guy that's coaching, uh, you know, 10 to 14 year olds. And I said, well, you know, I know you're trying to maybe pigeonhole a kid into a spot because it makes more sense. But I would I would challenge you to think differently about your training. And this is based on some of the stuff that you and Kai both have tweeted. But I know you in particular showing things uh, over the last couple of years of of literally first baseman taking ground balls at short and, and right. vice versa and trying to train differently to promote some athleticism and, and maybe change the the idea. So now that shortstop has a perspective of what it feels like to, to really pick balls out of the dirt. That's when you right. have a chance to talk about accuracy. So trying to challenge him a little bit. And he's like, I've never thought of that. I said, well, here's the beauty of it. There's coaches right now. Go to Yale, 18 to 22 year olds. You have the first baseman taking ground balls at short. I was like, so why right. does that work for your 10 to 14 year olds? But again, it's it's more creating that athleticism inside the, the structure of training. And I want to say one more question on training. Um, when you think about again, coaches love drills and, and they and they love to be able to, like we talked about that that golden time inside of our practice schedule. How can we fill it with something that really gets the most out of our players? Tuck, start this one off. Your favorite drills, your most effective drills, or the ones that are maybe tried and true for you. Right, right. I mean, I, I was actually having a conversation with um, JJ Edwards yesterday. Mm-hmm. We were at a recruiting event down in mm-hmm. Florida. He's an assistant over there at uh, at Wofford College. And let me say this: like drills are great. I, I, I'm a self-professed non-drill guy. I do have them; they're in my toolbox. Yeah. But I'll say this: like the same way you, we all want a great beach body is what diet and exercise is really the way we all know that yeah. that's the map to getting there. But there's going to be diets out there that kind of trick you into having a little bit more fun with getting to that beach body. And the the steady ground balls at game distances, at game speeds, and consistent gameplay, that's our diet and exercise as infielders. Um, but if we do a good job tracking and we do a good job identifying where we're strong, where we're not as strong, then that's where I'll, I'll actually kind of connect some dots here in terms of what Kai tweeted about a handful of weeks ago in that you know, drills are almost like, I, I think you refer to them as medicine, Kai, where you mm-hmm. don't want to lean on them every day, yeah. right? We don't want to be, you know, overly medicated, all right? So <laughs> we do want the daily, you know, dose of diet, like just healthy eating and exercise, which again, is just game distance reps at game speed, trying not to uh, pigeonhole yourself in any one lane or hop, yeah. all that good stuff. But if a kid is struggling in a certain area, we'll absolutely slow things down, isolate that. And for us... I'd say the best drill that we we have is our are our hand circuits. Uh, we call them hand circuits. We don't call them pick circuits. I think most coaches will refer to them as pick circuits that um, you know isolate the short hop on obviously the forehand and the backhand side. What I'm going to do in Dallas is I'm going to give everybody six different ways to kind of amplify that traditional pick circuit, and it's just to make it a little bit more versatile, a little bit more challenging, but not so challenging that it's not game like. We want to make sure that we're not basically creating another sport out there. We got to make sure that what tasks we're asking our guys to do in practice are still translating and translating in a productive way to the actions and the productivity that we want to see, you know, when the, when the balls hit between the lines and, you know, when we're playing Harvard. So um, what we do though with our hand circuits is we really try to tap into all of our lanes, all of our hops. We actually get pretty creative with how we match those um, exchanges up with the foot patterns that we're using. And again, we can dive into that a little bit further in Dallas, but yeah. our hand circuits are something that I've tweeted about from time to time that I'll try to get into a little bit more depth um, in Dallas. But that's what we lean on every single day that I think if, if I was working with an eight-year-old, I'd still do it. If I was working with Lindor, I'd still do it and everywhere in between. 
Mm, love it. Kai, anything to add to that? Again, just favorite drills, most effective drills that, that maybe you, you fall back to? To finish off what Tuck was talking about earlier, when he alluded to my medicine metaphor, is understanding the difference between daily vitamins and and prescription medication, mm-hmm. right? And so daily vitamins are things that everybody can take, and it's not going to mess anybody up. That's those live game-like reps. That's those those reps at the position in the way they happen in the game. And then prescription meds are, are drills, right? Sometimes if a guy already does something really intuitively and really well and always in rhythm, exposing him to a drill that reinforces that might be bad because for the first time he might be thinking about that activity and thinking about it is going to take him away from his natural. And so understanding what you do with some guys and what you do to others. So right now, my favorite type of drill um, that, that I'm really into or rep that I'm really into is these open-ended activities that don't necessarily have a preset destination, right? So a lot of times mm-hmm. we take mass ground balls and everyone knows this round we're going to one, this round we're going to two. Hey, the left side's going to two, the right side's going to one. You guys are going to home, we're going to two, whatever it may be, and it's scripted. And then we're going to do slow rollers, then we're going to do backhands. And so right now, my favorite type of drill are, are activities where the direction, the eventual destination, where the ball has to go gets determined by a bunch of factors, whether what type of ball it is, how the ball is hit, the pace of the ball, the direction of the ball, or a verbal verbal call from another player. And so my favorite thing to do right now is incorporate decision-making. And we'll get into this more at Dallas, but incorporating decision-making is a really important thing to me as infielders because when I started tracking errors with our, with our minor league guys, I started finding that the bulk of the errors, even if they appear physical on the surface, have their root in the decision-making. They didn't know the runner speed. They were aggressive when they could have been conservative. They were conservative when they could have been aggressive. We threw to two and we should have thrown to one. We tried to force a double play. We, we took uh, a, a too sharp of a route when a rounder one we do, or vice versa. And so that then it re- made me realize so much of our frustration as coaches comes from the decisions our guys make. Come on, man. We're up by two. We don't need a double play, play there. Just get an out. Yeah. You know, control the beginning. We say stuff like that, but then we practice in such a rehearsed, orderly fashion. And so, like I said, my favorite thing to do right now is incorporate those decisions into drills and make them more open-ended. And so the ball is hit or the ball is rolled or the ball is fed. And it might end up going to two. It might end up going to four. It might end up going to one. That's so good. I can't wait. Again, we keep talking about this presentation. You two getting up there. I know you're going to deliver so much great stuff for our coaches. Um, Kai, start this one off because I know this this is kind of getting into your wheelhouse of taking all the things we just talked about. Again, we just we just broke down the building blocks. We broke down catch play, everyday drills, the training environment, a few other uh, effective drills that you guys like. But now we really got to think about the big picture in mind here. I mean, all these individual defensive moments really lead us towards team defense. I know that's something that's really big for you. How to blend indie defense with now team defense. How are you doing that? How are you doing that with the Indians each day? Well, you know, I think the the biggest thing is everything leads into the next thing, Mm -hmm. right? And so when you get out there um, from from your throwing program into your hand circuit that day, into your transition drills, and then into the sets of mass reps you do, if you incorporate all the different ways the ball is handled, the ball is secured in a game, that will lead to more effective team defense, right? So that's the first concept that that people need to remember is if I only practice ground balls and then I get to team defense and we are so mad at first and third days because we can't play catch or we can't throw on the run or we can't move and, ca- and move and catch it and redirect it. When we're so mad on cut and redirect days, relay days, when we can't throw a long hop, long hop, no hop, come on, figure it out. You know, yeah. or when we, we, we botch the tag, we're so mad on 
on on on bunty days you know because we're mishandling on the run we have to realize that yeah. we haven't prepared for all of those tasks yeah. and so one of my favorite things is to work backwards from the team defensive drill that we're doing that day all the way into catch play so let's say we're going to do we're going to do cuts and relays um in team defense i know that's coming down the end of the wire in catch play i'll make sure hey it'll be a long toss day and i'll make sure hey we have some element of relaying as one of the tasks at the end of the rainbow, mm. right? And we have some we have some element of long hop, no hop relaying at, built in. Then when we get the team defense, we'll take our mass ground balls, we'll take our ground balls at positions, but we'll have a station set up on the side, whether it's a, with a uh, with a hack attack or whether it's a fungo or a thrown ball. We're working on the mechanics of seeing the ball in flight and making the decision. Do I relay it? Do I cut it? Do I redirect it? Do I hold it? Yeah. And then we'll have another station set up that will become in the rotation as the ground balls change. That station will change to a catching and tagging. So by the time team defense starts and the outfielders and the catchers all join us, we have been primed for that activity. We have prepared our arm with length. We have done some relay mechanics. We have done some cut redirect, redirect mechanics and we've done some tags so now we're prepared for what's to come and now team defense is all about teaching roles and responsibilities it's about being in there and we don't have to worry about the ball being handled the ball is going to be handled because we prepared to handle it in the manner we need to right. for that team defense and you can do that for basically every team defense if you start with the end in mind if you start with how the organism is going to look like in its entirety with all nine guys moving whether it's pfps or bunt defense or, or cuts and relays then you can really work backwards and know how each of the gears should work and you can make sure they're primed before you put the group together. That is that is certified audio gold right there, my friend. Again, for challenging yourself to think. I love the framework of with the end in mind and that is how you pull your coaching points and your and your movements out of that. Tuck, is anything to add to that? I mean, big picture in mind, how are you blending that yeah. when you go to team? I love talking team defense because mm -hmm. I think – most of our days are spent on the practice field where everyone's obviously operating in different corners of the field yeah. and at different times. And I love being able to connect all those dots with one another to basically give our guys a sense of, all right, how do we want this machine to work when we're all out there on the same side of the ball? Yeah. And when I think team defense, and, and this is just pivoting a little bit, uh, I think of it in a different way. I, I, we, we have what's called like a process report card. And basically what we're doing is we're keeping track of, of team defense and sometimes offensive categories that basically follow three criteria. Okay, mm -hmm. The first is we want to be able to track it. All right, We want to be able to not only track it for us, but also the other team. And, and there's certain things that are either tough to, to track or you're not going to just, if you really just hold yourself to that, I want to be able to say to my team that if we're able to pay attention to this and we're able to track it, if we're to beat those other guys in this category, that we're going to win at least two-thirds of the time. That's the second stipulation I have. Yeah. So for us, there's a number of different categories that based on you know, my, my 12 years here, you know, we look back and we say, yeah, if we do a good job in this area and we do a better job than that team on this day, we're going to be in a really good position to win this game. So one, can we track it? Two, if we beat that team um, in that category, are we going to more likely than not come away with a W? And then three, and this is a big one for me because I think it's changed my talks post-game. It's if we didn't do a good job in it, can we come back on Monday or Tuesday or wherever our next practice is and work on it? I think there's so many parts of the game that we as coaches are frustrated about that we clearly didn't do a very good job of. But it's really tough to roll up our sleeves and really mirror in practice on Monday or Tuesday. Um, 
so what some of the, the categories that we think of from a de- defensive standpoint are, are, are these three bases. All right. If you look at the data over the last decade or so, the team that limits the number of free bases over the course of the, the nine innings typically wins the game almost seventy percent of the time. Yeah. You know, and it's basically over the turnover battle of baseball. You, you hear football coaches talk about the turnover battle in football all the time. It's our version of that in, in, in the baseball game. And I'm sure that, that those numbers may change at, at Kai's level. They may change for better or worse at the high school level, but at our level in our league, there there's some substance to that. Mm-hmm. Another is is actually the leadoff battle. This is one of my favorites. Um, the team that does a better job retiring the leadoff hitter every inning wins the game over 70% of the time. Um, and there's an old quote from like Tom Glavin that he throws most of his pitches from the stretch in a bullpen because of the most important pitches of, uh, of an outing. I, right. I would beg to differ. Okay. I would actually beg to differ. All right. Because the numbers show that the most important pitches that you throw every inning are actually the first ones. Um, and the, the reason for that is last year at my presentation I actually showed that you know, the, if you were to retire the leadoff hitter, that's we actually dug into some football data. Okay. And we compared it to like the kickoff um, or a punt, any special teams, because it's our version of special teams, we call it. Yep. And when you're able to retire the leadoff hitter, a, a baseball team has the same chance of scoring as a football team does when they're pinned inside the 10. When the leadoff hitter reaches, the baseball team has a, the same likelihood of scoring um, as that kick returner taking it back all the way to the 50. When it's a leadoff double, it's getting it all the way down into like, let's say like the 30 yard line. Yeah. And then obviously if that leadoff hitter hits a triple, that's like taking it all the way back into your opponent's red zone. Like it's, it's data that we've looked up and we've given them a cool visual to see and give them a sense of like, okay, Hey, when you guys go out there, whether you're a pitcher warming up or an infielder, take those reps. Don't take those for granted. We actually, this year talked to our entire clubhouse saying, Hey, infielders, how many reps do you need to feel like you're good to go that first hitter? And to a man, they're all like three. One to kind of do from a short distance, one to kind of gradually work it back. And if I can get a, a throw from the deepest part of my position, kind of full throttle, I'll be mm-hmm. ready to go for that leadoff guy. But how many times is a guy frustrated with an at-bat, slow to get out there, we can't find the glove, he gets no reps, or if he gets one, it's, it's nothing that's actually getting him ready for that leadoff guy. Yeah. And again, it just, it's, it's bringing everybody back to how the machine will work. Total bases is a big one for us, not just the ones that are earned from home plate, but the ones that are literally earned on every part of the base pass. So we... We track first to third, going first to third on a uh, single to the outfield. We track dirt balls. Anything that the box score keeps track of, we also do. But if it doesn't show up in the box score, we keep track of that just to make guys understand that at the end of the game, the team that accumulates the most bases, that's actually our most telling statistic. It's like 94% of the time. So, again, we're just trying to create some uh, basically a teaching platform that shows, yeah, we're going to go out there and work double plays. We're going to go work on keeping the hitter off of two as outfielders. We're going to talk about keeping balls in front of us as catchers. But it all works back into this theme of this machine working as efficiently as possible. And I think the more often that we're able to kind of tie everything together in that way, I think it's cool because it's competitive. And we don't have to be better than anybody other than the team we're facing on that given day. We may have a bad day. And if we're playing Harvard, we don't need to be better than Dartmouth. We just need to be better than Harvard (laughs) on that day. And it forces us to just put blinders on to what's happening across the league, look across the other end of the field, and just try to be better than those guys for those nine innings. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm just going to tell you this. I'm going to take your stats. I'm going to take all that at what it's worth at face value. You're in the Ivy League, and I'm not. Um, <laughs> I don't need a peer review to tell me that those are accurate, but that that challenged, that, that, that challenged some baseball guys. Again, taking the data, what's in front of you, 
and and really letting it guide your coaching and guide what really matters in terms of your overall philosophy. Now, you've mentioned a few things, again, tracking those things, tracking data inside your, your program, but I love the report cards. I love the opportunity to really individually coach those guys. What else, Tucker, are you keeping track of? What other charts within training or BP? How are you really creating accountability? Right. Uh, like I said, the, the process report card is big, and it's just it's constantly – kept every single game mm-hmm. um and every monday they're shown how they did over the course of the weekend not only relative to how they did against whoever our opponent was but we also have some another form of almost like a stock we're trying to like three bases is a big one to us we want to limit all forms of 90 feet that the other team's not earning sure and that we're essentially like giving them and it's funny like as a northeast team as a cold weather team i tell you that every single one of my my years here our first weekend we play the sloppiest just because we're limited in terms of how many like you know balls off a of bat we're able to see with an actual runner going down the line. We've gotten creative with it over the years, but there's just nothing that truly replicates the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look at us uh, over the course of a season, our free bases have slowly gone down the more games that we play. And there's all there's always something to be said as to how you did in a framework of a nine inning game. I did it over the course of a weekend against that particular opponent. Yeah. But I think looking not just at the micro, but also the macro, like, okay, we didn't do a good job. Let's just push this thing in the right direction. Like that's, I think important and, and healthy for our guys as a unit. And I want them to take pride in, in seeing those numbers. If, if they want, if we want them to go up, I want to see some, you know, them halfway at, mid, at our mid season point, notice that, Hey, we're getting better. Maybe the wins and the losses aren't necessarily equating the way that we want. Yeah. You know, maybe we're facing some powerhouses that are forcing us to play our A plus game. And if we play our A minus game, we're still coming out with a del- uh, with an L. Yeah. But we're trending in the right direction. We're getting better every week. I think that's really important for our guys to see, regardless of what's happening on the scoreboard. Kai, anything to add to that? How are you guys tracking your players? Are there things that you're doing within the practices or games that really help you create accountability? Unmute it, Kai. Come on, Kai. Sorry. Unbelievable. Um, Hey man, I'm giving Tuck is dropping bombs. Tuck I'm is making sure it's a clear, clear background. Tuck is is literally seeing it fat right now. He is seeing watermelons. <laughs> so good. So that's why I'm I'm like letting it I'm letting it be, man. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, for me, the biggest thing I'm 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 tracking uh, on a daily basis is where are outs coming from? Where, what kind of plays are we seeing, and at what regularity? Not only at our level you know, whatever that affiliates level is, mm-hmm. but also the level they want to get at in the major leagues. And so once I'm looking at that, and so by that, I mean, okay, how many balls are guys getting in, in, in their baseline depth, in, in their double play depth, to their right, to their left, uh, moving forward on slow rollers, generated to the plate with infield in, out of the shift, how many balls in the air, how many times are they tagging, how many times are they relaying, redirecting, how many times are they picking? Okay, now if they're, if that's the proportion that's all of that's happening, even more specifically, what do those ground balls look like? What's the average exit velo? What's the average launch angle? What's uh, what's the handedness of the batter who hits them the ground ball? And, and, and now, working backwards from there, how do I recreate that in practice? What is, do our proportion in practice reflect that? Right? So if I'm, for example, and I don't want to dive too into this because I burst our, our Dallas bubble, but... <laughs> A major league first baseman, 88% of the ground balls he gets hit to him in the in the course of a season are by a left-handed hitter. Excuse me, 79% are left-handed, and 88% of those are topspin. So if I'm a right-handed fungo hitter 
hitting ground backspin ground balls to my first baseman, yeah. I'm preparing him for something that he gets less than 3% of the time. No doubt. So I'm not surprised when he misses. And so tracking that is important. And so how do I make adjustments to that? Well, simply put, I take my starting sec first baseman and I start put my starting second baseman out on defense when my batting practice group with the most left-handed hitters hit. Right. And mm-hmm. so that way you're creating the most game like rep. If you just leave it up the chance and it's a mix of righties and lefties and he plays his live defensive rotation during BP when it's three righties and one lefties and he's got a right handed coach, he's not going to get game like ground balls. And so that's why tracking that kind of information is important. How many reps is he getting per position that includes all the tasks that he's expected to make during the game? And so that's kind of. Um, Tuck uses his data to to track player development and track practice and track progress. Mm-hmm. And I use my data kind of in the reverse to take the game and then design practice and, and engineer practice so that way it reflects it. That's it. Oh, man. Uh, let's go into double plays. I know that's a really cool um, element for you guys when we can really talk through the cues. And I think that's important, too. I think there's so many different ways that guys talk. And I love the variability that I know each of you bring to your infield group. Kai, start us off with that. When you're thinking about just working on double plays specifically, what are your thoughts here? What are your cues here? Obviously, there's two major components of the double play, right? So there's the feed and there's the pivot. Mm-hmm. And you want to create build versatility within both of those, right? So starting with the feed, let's take a singular position, right? Let's take second base, all right? So he's going to have a range, a window, in which he's going to flip with his fingers down. Then he might have a range in the window where he's going to flip with his thumb down. And then he's going to have a range in the window where he's going to pivot, sending his right foot towards the outfield. And then he's going to have a range in a window and a type of ball and a pace that he's going to reverse spin. Mm -hmm. So to me, the goal in practicing a double play is finding a way to put your athletes in a position that they can figure out their most efficient move for each of those windows and then figure out the exact size of each of those windows. One guy's fingers down flip radius is going to be smaller or bigger than another guy's thumb down. That's right. Right. And the same for the spin and same for the pivot. So creating these zones and then changing the shape and the pace of the ground balls and the direction of the ground balls. So that allows that infielder for the creativity, then adding the clock to it. So not only is he getting a feel for accuracy just based with his eyes on where that feed goes, but he's getting a feel for pace based on how long the ball takes to get to him and how long he takes to get it to second base. And so, to me, Tuck said the word efficiency earlier. And that's what efficiency is. It's the combination. It's the merger. It's the marriage between accuracy of the feed and the time spent accomplishing the task. By doing that and by doing that with regularity and by measuring that, each infielder will find their window and each infielder will find their style in which they uh, they accomplish things the most efficient. The same goes for the pivot. If you flip that on its side and now I'm a second baseman um, pivoting the ball to, to first base, I uh, my task there, again, is to be versatile. Some feeds have different heights, different directions, uh, different spins to them, different pace to them, different proximity with runner. And so... I need to be as best as possible to have the most dance moves, as Tuck put it earlier. Mm. Can I go to the, my right? Can I come through the bag? Can I come through the bag to my left? Can I go behind the bag? Can I come through the bag to my right? Can I do all of those things efficiently? There's a lot of 50-50 feeds. The better your partner is, the more balls you're going to get where you can do the most things with them. Yeah. Right. So a really good feed is a good feed because it allows for creativity for the guy turning the double play. 
So that's why efficiency comes in because if creativity is allowed, your guy needs to know which one he does at the highest clip and the fastest rate. And so that's the one he can choose on that perfect feed. So to me, the mechanics of the double play is all about giving your guys the tools to have the most types of feeds in the fastest way possible with the most accuracy. And then the same goes for the play. Gosh, it's awesome. Uh, Tuck, anything to add to that, again, specifically yeah. on double plays? Yeah, I think the, the biggest um, mistake I see made is you add that extra task of redirecting the ball not to the base that we ultimately want it to finish, right? Mm -hmm. We kind of have a, you know, we, we turn this play into something that it ultimately doesn't need to be thrown into, and, yeah. and we ultimately rush. I think most infielders rush this play and we want to make sure that we're stay efficiency is a term we're using all, like more than any in this in this talk. But yeah. we want to stay efficient. We don't want to throw away outs. And yeah, there's an element that like speaks to just how important double plays are. But we don't want to hunt them to an extent that we're actually giving up outs. Um, so what I what I see a lot with my infielders is this: we get we get them on the clock very often. And when we do, we'll get the time that ball hits the fungo to the time it hits first base mm -hmm. when you inevitably i do every every single year i start with that and when you do that everyone speeds up everyone's hunting the slowest time possible and everyone's inefficient the feeds are inaccurate the because the feeds are inaccurate the pivots um not very quick and then i usually transition to okay here's what we're gonna do we're gonna just time the pivot and i want whoever's feeding whether you're second baseman feeding short whether you're shortstop feeding second third baseman feed in second, you name it. I want you to start taking pride in that pivot time. And it's going to be based on your feed. You're going to see where if you hit him in the spot that he wants it, you're going to see that time go down. If you don't, and it's too low of a throw, or a little bit wider than where he wants it, you're going to see that time go down. But I want you to understand that your feed is basically that pivot time. It's not him and his pivot time. Yeah. And then ultimately, we'll start to do that. And without them even realizing it, I'm still keeping track of the overall time. And when that feeder starts slowing down and taking a little bit more pride in how accurate he is and what he does to allow the pivoter to kick it up into that top gear if the play kind of dictates it, yeah. all of a sudden the play as a whole gets a hell of a lot quicker and it's, it's, it's a lot more efficient. I think with infielders especially, right? Hmm. There's so many feeds. I'll take shortstop, for example. You take a shortstop, it goes into the hole. I'd say there's no better play for an infielder to really showcase just how cool his hands look and how fast they can be. <laughs> then going into the hole and ripping that like low slot feed um, to feed a second baseman. Like that's honestly like, I feel the coolest when I do that at, at a million miles an hour. <laughs> no doubt. But usually it, I tell our guys when they do that, yeah, your hand, you're showcasing your hands, but look where the feed is, man. Like you're pulling them into left field. Yeah. You're either throwing it low, and, and the whole play is going to die yeah. just because you're using it as an opportunity to showcase your hands. Yeah. I usually tell our guys, hey, 75% is your gear on this play. Think of it that way. Think 75%. It's going to slow you down, not to a point where you're like taking your time. We still want to have efficient, quick foot patterns. But if you kick it down to like 75 80% and spend a little bit more of your focus on hitting them, typically in our left, we, we go left shoulder. Right with our because I think it, yeah. it gives us a chance to be reversal with our footwork in yeah. ways that not everybody would agree with, but but we do it. But if they slow it down just a little bit, again the the, the feet gets a little bit more accurate, the pivot gets a little bit quicker, and the play as a whole gets a little bit quicker. And we we tend to collect that many more outs. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more from a queuing standpoint. 
I, I think my thought process, how I convey that message that mm -hmm. Tuck so perfectly described, is the first guy's job is accuracy. I love the it. The second guy's yeah. job is fast. That's it. You know, yeah. in terms of priorities. You know, it's simply put, if that guy does his job, the second guy's job is easier. If the first guy doesn't do his job, then everything is out the window. You know, so accuracy over fast and then fast over accurate on the back end. Yeah, that's great. Um, by the way, the one thing I'll say, by the way, if anybody wants to speed up their infielder's times, stop worrying about getting in the way, of, getting out of the way of the runner. Yeah. I can honestly tell you that at least at our level, we've had way more guys called out at first base because our – our, our base runner touched um, the shoelace of the middle guy um, <laughs> yeah. than we've ever had an infielder get hurt. And if we spend a little bit more time just knowing what the area is yeah. that the base runner is given, it's almost like a, a pop time, right? Like this is where the batter is going to be. Yeah. This is his box. And you can maneuver anywhere you want around him. But if we think about a catcher maneuvering his feet in a way, like the hitter is going to swing the bat and hit him. Like it's just as realistic in the middle infield here. We we've gone from an era where, yeah, runners can absolutely take us out in ways that were very detrimental to our careers, but things at all levels have been cleaned up in a way where we have to get out of that era, get a little bit more in tune with the current rules and what's being enforced and understand what impact it has on what we can now teach our guys in the middle. I mean, there's also an element of, I don't know. I mentioned this on in, uh, uh, the convention last year. I, I don't know where it went, but there's also an element of like being able to absorb a good slide that for whatever reason has gone out the window. Like I always loved patting a guy on the ass after he took me out and I still pivoted it. I think that's, yeah. that's lost now that, um, again, if you're, you're worrying just about avoiding that runner, like he's got a grenade. I think all of a sudden those pivot <laughs> times go way down in ways they don't need to. Well, I, yeah, I mean, Tuck hit the nail on the head. It, it's the catcher pop time. It is. Right. And, and what, what, what we find is the larger the steps we take, the longer we stride, the longer that exchange is going to be. The short, quick step is the most efficient for the pivot. And so if I'm overly conscious about avoiding the runner and I add length, unnecessary length to my step, I add unnecessary time yes. to my pivot. And in effect, the runner has broken up the double play without touching me. Right. You know, exactly. And so it's exactly. all about how quick can I get my right foot down? And how quick can I get my left foot down to get the ball out? And knowing the safe areas, so it's quick in a safe area. And then it's done. Does that bring us back to catch play and in, <laughs> in, in specific training environments and specific uh, focuses, right? Yeah, we, we lay down other bases um, in front of second base on the way to first. Okay. So we have a bunch of throwdown bases. We literally throw them down towards first base. Again, just to give our guys the visual of like, all right, here, here's where I can't step. Here's yeah. where my feet can't take me no matter what. And if... If I'm taken over here, I just got to brace for something that I don't want. But mm -hmm. and sometimes the ball takes you there too, like it's part of the position. But yeah. if we're over, if we think of those bases or that part of the field that we are not allowed to step bigger than it actually is, it can affect a lot of things in a negative way that over the course of the season will will show up in that process report card, right? Yeah. Total bases and 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 the way that we're actually being as efficient as we want to be behind our pitchers. Let's open oh, and Tuck. I want you to start this one. I, this is a neat question for me to ask because I um, I really do consider you guys, and you've proven it over time. Your bodies of work uh, and how passionate you are about infield play, and and again leading the thoughts and challenging coaches with what you guys are doing. Tuck, when you look at trends on the infield, what do you see mm -hmm. in the near future for us? What what's maybe changed most recently, but where do you see it really moving forward? Uh, just a touch down the road. 
Yeah, yeah. I think other than first base, I mean, you're always going to have an infielder that's closest to first. It's got to cover the bag. Mm -hmm. I think everybody else is going to be very fluid, not only in terms of where they're asked to play, but even just the names that you're given to those those positions. I mean, um, the way that you see a lot of big league teams shifting around, it's 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 growing. It's growing yeah. across the board, um, and in ways that if there's one trend that I think is going to happen, I, I think you're going to ultimately see every team have almost like a middle linebacker, like a Ray Lewis, who's deemed their best defender, mm. and you're going to put him right smack in the middle of whatever hitter spray chart is. So if Andrell and Simmons is my best guy, um, I don't need my second baseman to his left. I may put my second baseman to, uh, to his right. If I can put Simmons right smack in the middle of what I kind of deem that piece of the pie that this hitter is most likely to hit it in, I want my best infielder, my most sure-handed infielder, literally kind of like splitting the upright, so to speak, in terms of where I think that hitter is going to yes. field the ball. Like flipping yeah, positions in terms exactly. of chronological and, order, yes. Yeah, so I think I think in that respect you're almost going to be like, and I don't know what the positions will always be called what they what they've always been, yeah. but you're going to kind of see a guy one guy be, you know, the guy you want the ball hit to, and then you're going to kind of have a hierarchy, and and you're going to put your third best infielder in a position that's third likeliest to be hit, have the ball hit his way. I think you're going to see a little bit more like willingness mm -hmm. to do that, and I think it goes back to the topic that defensive shifts. And and putting guys in positions where you just think that this hitter is going to hit it, it's going to start to become, I hope, more widely accepted. I mean, I, I was thinking mm -hmm. about this the other day. Think about football, and and basically baseball for years was avoiding like double teaming Randy Moss on the outer on the outer edge. Yeah. You know, on the basketball side of things, um, again, like LeBron's going to get double teamed if I'm guarding a point guard. And he can't, he can't go left. Yeah. I'm going to guard his right. I'm going to make him go left. I'm going to guard and cheat to the area that he's most likely to go. And I'm going to force him to utilize the part of his game that I know is weakest. It's what you see. Imagine like a team just ramming it down your throat on the football field, handing it off to, you know, um, you know, Adrian Peterson over and over and over again and not being able to stack the box. Yeah. Right. That's basically what baseball was for, for years. Everyone just went out there, stayed at their position, and if the ball happened to trickle up the middle, they're like, all right, what? one pitch away. <laughs> and now we have a little bit better sense of not only, okay, we're tracking where guys are hitting it, mm. but also we're not we, – we're allowed to move over there. Yeah. You know, like yeah. with, the, with the exception of throwing a, a fielder behind home plate, right? I think that's the only defensive rule that's in place. You can't put like your first baseman – um, behind the catcher. He's got to be in fair territory. Yeah. Other than that, it's fair game. And I think the more creative um, guys that uh, are, are that look at that through the right lens, you're going to see some things that maybe we're not even thinking about right now. But I, I can't see it being basically as, um, you know, it, it, it's seen almost as like too new school. And it, it, it baffles me as to why it is because you've been yeah. watching football and basketball games your whole life. It's done in that environment and we just don't want to do it in baseball. It's, it's nuts in my view. That's slow to change, man. That's our, that's our culture. Uh, Kai, what do you see trends on the infield? What jumps off to you? Well, yeah, I couldn't agree more with uh, tuck. I think he painted a great picture and yeah. I think the biggest nemesis to the shift is the idea of beating the shift. Right. And yeah. what coaches need to understand is what is actually getting beat and what isn't. Right. And mm. so if to take the basketball analogy, if I am up by three points and there is one second left 
and I let you lay it in, I won. Yeah. Right. You know, my defense allowed you to score and I still won. Right. And so if we have graded from an analytical standpoint that this batter shooting the ball through the four hole, drag bunting, whatever it may be, has a less likelihood of creating a run than homering, doubling does, then why wouldn't we want that? Why wouldn't we let the guy lay it up when we're up by three? And so I think the biggest way we eventually will get over the shift is the understanding that sometimes it's better. At one point, when I was coaching in Northern Colorado, um, Air Force had the most prolific offense in the country. And they had guys, I I mean, they had too many guys on like 40-game hitting streaks. But they had one guy that, you know, he, he, I swear he homered against us 15 times, you know. And so we loaded the the left side, and he had the barrel control to shoot the four, and uh, C.J. Gilman brought it up to me. He said, what are you doing? You know he can go the other way. And I said, yeah, I'm daring him to single. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, I'm, dar- you know, I'm, I'm daring him to single. Stay in the yard, buddy. Yeah. You know, and Tuck just talked about how 90 feet is so valuable in our game at every level, from high school to professional baseball. It's the straightest, greatest marker that represents um, – that represents – who's going to win and who's going to lose yeah. why wouldn't you pos- why wouldn't your positioning reflect defending that 90 feet mm. you know and, and and so that's that's the thing i think once people start associating what is a good result and what is a bad result that's when you, people will truly buy into shifting at all levels i think the next fair. trend that will come is understanding what good defense is and what bad it's such a hard thing to grade Right, because it's such an open reactionary activity. And so I'm so glad that Tuck talked about this early on. So his defense last year at Yale, they were fortunate enough to secure the baseball at the highest clip. Right, That gets you the highest fielding percentage. That's an incredible honor mm-hmm. for a team defense. At the same time, that's not a reflection standing alone of a good defense. Like you said, they also created the most out. They got to the most ball. They converted the most balls put in play at top 10 in the country in the outs. That's a reflection of range. That combined is what you want in a defense. And so there's a lot. People hang their hat on fielding percentage a lot. And and I hate to say it, but at the college level, fielding percentage has much to do with your relationship with the official scorer and the groundskeeper. Oh, yeah. No doubt. This is the Uncle Jimmy conversation right here. Uncle Jimmy, let him keep stats for you. Yeah, I've been telling everybody, if you want to lead the country in field percentage, there's three things you need to do. One, you got to play a lot of your games on the road so that every single one of those 50-50 balls is just yes. given a hit. Yeah. But, all right. Number two, get a turf field like we did. And number three, be somewhat sure-handed. You'll lead the country in field percentage. Yeah. But you will, you will not, however, lead the country in getting the balls. And so Correct. his defense did both. Mm-hmm. And so that's what people need to understand, how range factor and UZR, defensive run saves, affect the grade. It's not it, – it's you – a good defense has a mix – of converting hits into outs and keeping outs outs. It's not only one or the other. And so that's the really cool thing about what his guys did last year is that it's the true mix. And I think that's the next frontier for infield is equipping the coach at every level with the right numbers to grade his defense. Man, you guys, I say this often and I'm going to say it again, man. I did not coach infielders if I'm up against you guys. Didn't even come close, not even not even in the conversation. Um, Tuck, I want you to start this one off. We'll give Kai the, the last remarks here. He's a pro guy. We got to bow down to that. Um, 
but oh, come, on. come on, man. So, Tuck, what's the best advice you've been given? We never end a show without asking that. There's so much to be taken away from. Uh, maybe maybe the mantra that, that you always come back to, the best advice, but then what else do you have? For other coaches paying attention, what would you offer those guys? Honestly, I piece of advice I received as a player from my dad carried over to to coaching in ways that, you know, I, I'll obviously share it with my, my players as well, but I think it, it absolutely applies to what we're trying to do and what we struggle with from a, from a coach's perspective. And as a player, like we all kind of get out of the gate, either hot or not so hot over the course of our, our seasons. And, you know, there's obviously a handful of seasons that, you know, you maybe don't get out of the gate as quickly as you like. And, you know, despite all the work that you're putting in and how you envision that like opening day going or that first week of the season going, like, as we all know, it doesn't necessarily go the way you plan. And what my dad always used to tell me when those types of, you know, ruts came my way is, Listen, a, a 300 hitter will hit 300, you know, and a 200 hitter is going to hit 200. And, and just because somebody got out of the gate fast, like, let it play out. It's going to play out. You'll yeah. be, if you're, if you're good and you put the work in, it's going to come out in the wash. It may not be there today, but it will be when it's all said and done. From the coach's perspective, I can say the same thing. If you're a good coach and you have a passion for not only what you do, but the people that you're working with, and it drives you to do things, not just when you're in front of those people, but behind the scenes. If there's an effort being made even when no one's watching. It'll come out in the wash at some point. And I think if there's one thing as coaches that sometimes we struggle with, it's, it's living and dying game by game, which is part of it, right? We're competitive as hell. It's part of the reason why we got into it. But it's also season by season. I think our seasons are often like looked at in ways that you know we don't need to put as much stock into, into that. Like it's, it's truly your career. And I look at a couple years ago when we finally got over the hurdle and we won it. We won the Ivy League. We're going to the dance. And I'm looking at that team and I'm looking at that four classes worth of players. And I'm realizing that it's not just those four classes. It's a lot of guys that came before that. It's guys that aren't even here that had a role in this and the things that we tried with them and maybe swung and missed on, so to speak. And maybe we, we revamped our current program because of, you know, the guinea pigs that we had, you know, seven, eight years ago. But that we're still willing to try what we ask them to. It's again, if if you have a passion for this, you have a work ethic to match, it'll come out in the wash. Nowhere near as quickly as we all would like. I get that. But if you put your head down and get as numb to the season by season, the game by game success or failures, that it's a lot easier said than done. I get that. But if you're able to do that more every season, every year, um, I, I think it's it's advice that held true as a player and absolutely carries over to the coaching ranks. That's so good. Kai, same question, man. Best advice and other advice. What would you offer? From an advice standpoint, you know, one thing, uh, one thing I think about is, uh, is that if we expect our guys to get better, we have to be doing the same, you know, and it's simple. And a lot of people have said it, but it, it it's so true. Like, they are going to be the same guy every day if we're the same guy every day. And so we have to do the research. We have to watch the film. We always have to cross-check ourselves. We have to be attracted to information that contradicts what we believe and information that confirms what we believe. Right? We have to, we have to be, take it all in and, and, and reinvent ourselves often if we expect, if, expect them to improve. And then the second thing kind of falls in line with Tuck said. It comes out in the wash. Don't set up your next job. Don't use your current job and believe it's a stepping stone. You know, I, when I went to Northern Colorado, it's my first division one job. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't cool. It wasn't famous. They had a thousand Twitter followers and I bought a house and everything I did 
was about winning at Northern Colorado, mm-hmm. developing dudes in Northern Colorado. When I interacted with other coaches and other teams, and guys will tell you, like, I said dumb things. I was hyper competitive, but at least I was showing the world that I was there to be where my feet were yeah. and that I was trying to make the infielders and the guys there as best as possible. And I think if you do that with a genuine approach to constantly improve yourself, A, and be there for the right reasons to give your guys the best information and make them improve the be- in the best ways possible, it will come out in the wash. But baseball has a way of exposing this, gen- this genuine. It has a way of exposing people who do things for the wrong reasons and are in things for the wrong reasons. And so that's my biggest thing is, is, is channel your passion to improvement and channel and passion to the guys you're, and the school that you're currently at. I'm going to offer this up to you guys. I think you you offer so much, and I know you're very welcoming of coaches to reach out and connect with you. Kai, can you? Where can people find you? How can they get in touch or, or take a look at some of the great things you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, if you uh, you want to DM me uh, on Twitter, Instagram, that's more than easy. I try to get back to people, and then also I have a contact page on FridayFieldersCamps.com that emails to me directly, and I usually try to respond to those within the first two days. In addition to that. Just from a coach education standpoint, uh, doing a ton of different camps all across the country. And as I put up all the time, coaches are always welcome. If you want to come and you want to observe a camp, you want to work camp, I'll throw you a hat and a shirt. I'll buy you lunch. I'll show you every drill we got. You know, I, um, that's, that's something I really, really enjoy doing. Love that. Talk what about you, man. Where can coaches connect with you? Yeah, yeah. I got a, an open DM on Twitter. I got an email at tucker.frawley at yale.edu. If, if guys have questions, I've always tried to, to get back to guys. They just need to be ready and willing for me to follow that up with if they have any high academic Division One caliber ball players that they know of in their area, they got to send me their emails too. So that's my recruiting ploy that I'm probably going to get turned in for by seven other Ivy League coaches. But that is uh, absolutely the follow-up to every single one of those DMs and those phone calls that uh that I get to just try to shed light on what we do. Love it. And again, you can always search on Twitter, hashtag Friday Fielders. You'll catch a lot of videos, a lot of content um, as to these guys are just willing to share and willing to get it out there and have great infield conversations. Looking forward to this episode coming out. And then as we get into hashtag ABCA chat, another great opportunity to share some information. Also another great feed for great content. Gentlemen, thanks for jumping on the call with us. I, I cannot thank you enough. I'm, I'm glad I can call you friends, but more than that, you guys challenge me. You challenge me as a, as a former coach to think differently, um, and you're certainly doing that for coaches across the country. Kai, Tuck, thanks for jumping on the call. We wish both you guys the best of luck, and we look forward to seeing you in Dallas. Thank you, Sheets. Thanks for having us, Sheets. Thanks so much for dialing into our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast and connecting with these great coaches. If you're interested in more of these shows, check us out on iTunes, hit subscribe and dive right in, or head over to abca.org slash podcast and scroll through all of our episodes. A huge thanks again to the great folks over at AstroTurf for sponsoring this podcast. If you're looking at doing any upgrades at your facility, head over to astroturf.com. That's astroturf.com and see why they've been ahead of the curve for almost 50 years. Now, here at the American Baseball Coaches Association, we're here to serve coaches around the world. So let us know how we can help. Head over to our website, abca.org, for more information. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, at ABCA1945. You can find us on Facebook as well. And feel free to reach out to me directly at any time on Twitter, at CoachSheets3, or by email, Sheets, S-H-E-E-T-S, 
at abca.org. We'd love to hear from our loyal members and continue to find ways to keep growing the game together. As always, coaches, thank you for listening in and staying dialed into our podcast. Until next week, we ask you keep growing, you keep developing, you keep challenging yourself inside this game. We wish you and your club the very best, and thank you for what you're doing for the game of baseball. Baseball.